Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we welcome John Mioli back to the show as he comes on and discuss his top 10 prospect rankings uh, in Baseball America for the Baltimore Orioles farm system. You also know John's work, though, from the Baltimore Sun. So we'll hear from him in a few minutes. But first, On the Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business that was established in 1959 and it's located on Main Street in beautiful historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. We do have one new member of our Patreon community who we want to shout out, and I'll uh, turn that over to Bob. Yeah, they wrote their name down as the Motion Ocean, but from their email, I can tell it's Matt Winter. So let's go with that. Well, <laughs> welcome well, aboard. Welcome, Motion Ocean, to the Patreon the community. Uh, we're glad to have you. So tonight's guest is a beat writer for the Baltimore Sun covering the Orioles, and he also contributes the annual prospect rankings for the Orioles over at Baseball America. The top 10 prospect list was recently published, and in the coming months, we'll have the full top 30 list in the annual Baseball America prospect handbook. Uh, He is John Mioli. John, great to have you back on the show. It's good to be here. What kind of uh, returning guest, you know, pantheon am I now? Are there a lot of you're tied for second uh, most appearances now. Uh, Stephen Loft is a draft uh, expert over at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com, holds a record with eight. So that's, long way to that's, go. That's a tough road to hoe, but, you know, it starts you with catch two. It. <laughs> it starts with two. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it's keep the leaderboard going here. So just to give us some background, um, what goes into your process? We're putting these lists together. And while you were doing it this year, what sort of feedback were you hearing, not just about the players, but the Orioles system as a whole? Um, so, so there's a process that starts, you know, truth, truthfully around like, around like July, I'll realize, and, and this is for when the season ended on Labor Day uh, around July, I'll be like, Oh my goodness. I so many guys I haven't seen yet. Uh, there, there's only two months left of the season. I have to get so I'll start going to more and more. I like to I like to make sure that I have at least seen as many of the players that are in ranking consideration as as I can because you know I'm not a scout. I'm not somebody who who is an authority on this stuff. But you know I've been going to to games long enough to know you know what's real and what's not. And you can be fooled just by looking at at, at the stats and whatnot. And, and there are guys who who I'm glad I've seen, and there are guys from you know. Because 
of like the downside and be like, eh, maybe that person's not really where I thought he would be. And there's been other times where I've gone and seen somebody and I'm like, okay, that's a dude, that's somebody that I need to need to need to follow up on. Um, you know, so as the season goes on, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get to know scouts that are on the organization that have the Orioles courage. Um, I'll get to know coaches and, and people in, in the organization and I'll kind of start laying the groundwork and I'll say, Hey, you know, sometime in September, I'm going to hit you up and we're going to, you know, we could talk or, um, you know, there's like a master notes document somewhere on my computer here with gosh, it, it, tens of thousands of words and, and all these, you know, in basically chicken scratch, um, you know, in computer form and, and it kind of goes from there. So it's a real, it's a real fun information gathering process. Um, I really enjoy it. I kind of go with a pretty strong idea of who's going to be where, what types of things will happen. But as you do hear about players that people and, and you hear about certain things. And I think that's the second half of the question. I think that, I think there's a lot of true hitting talent organization that that you that you didn't have before, and it's a lot easier for scout people outside the organization to to have strong positive opinions on hitters than pitchers. Um, I think there, I think people in that line of work are very cognizant of how difficult it is to be a big league starter. So if somebody's a starting pitcher who's well in the play. Um, and you say, oh, you know, they're doing well. They're a starter. You're, you know, nine scouts out of ten will say, oh, he could be like a maybe like an like an early inning reliever because the stuff like could, because they just project out and know what it takes. But, but when you're talking about, there's they're a little more they're a little more effusive, I guess, in, in in their praise. You know, if you see somebody hit ten home runs in, in a season as a scout, like I know somebody who saw Kyle Stowers literally hit ten home runs this year between Aberdeen and Bowie, like. That stuff stands out, and I think that people who have followed the organization in the last few years have seen a transition from from there being you know a handful of hitters that you have to pay attention to to, and that's and I think the list certainly reflects that. So let's start with the top hitter in the system, number one on your list. Let's say the CBA stays the same as far as you know the service time manipulation everything goes, uh, and Adley Rutschman uh, starts the year in AAA because we know that's where he's going to begin the year, right? Um, how big of what kind of immediate impact is Ali Rushman going to make on this squad? And I guess, do, do you think he actually is the opening day catcher for the Baltimore Orioles next year? Well, they have no catchers right now. Um, <laughs> so, so if the season started tomorrow, he, he very well might. Um, I, I, I think it's going to be, I think, I think it's going to be a real significant impact when, when the time comes, you know, his, you know, he, he's Adley Rushman. He's very lucky. Somebody everyone knows a lot about and everyone's following you know pretty pretty closely what's going on this season and and i found in this process i, I you know, there was that stretch where he, i think he had a where he like walked 10 times but he like but he didn't have like any hits or he had like one hit and he was just going through a rough patch and and you find out that he was basically like in between he's like all right i'm just gonna figure out like what my bang is and go and like rebuild it mid-season and, and where i'm making contact where, where i'm catching the ball and he just goes off from there. And that's the type of thing that that even though the bigs are going to be challenging, he's going to face the best pitching he's ever faced, he, he's going to be able to figure out. He's going to be able to do it. And the Orioles to have a, a, a hit is going to immediately, you know, lengthen their lineup by going batting fourth and, and protecting Ryan Malcastle and, and moving some of the guys who shouldn't be batting in the middle of the order down. That's going to be help. Somebody who can catch the ball and throw the ball as well as he can is obviously going to help. And I think that 
we're going to find out once and for all, you know, whether a good catcher who has a relationship with these young pitchers can, can make a difference at the big league level because a lot of them struggled for a lot of reasons. And, you know, if, if he gets up in May and there's a bunch of guys with five-something ERAs and, and those go down when he gets there, I think that's going to say plenty about both the catchers they were thrown to and the guy that the, they're going to be thrown to at that point. Absolutely. And his co-position player of the year, Kyle Stowers, pretty impressive that he's made it all the way up to number seven on the list. But uh, we know about his bat pretty much. It's all we've been hearing about all year. But how is his defense, especially his arm? Is that going to be plus in a corner outfield or is it just get by? What do you think? I, I, I think it's going to be an arm that's totally fine in right field. He's not going to be light for it. He's not going to be like a, a total cannon, but I think that he's somebody, you know, when he was drafted, he was announced as a center fielder. Um, I think that, I think ever, I think it's like a, an emergency center field at this point, but you know, he has the range. He's more athletic than, than somebody who you char- characterize as a slugger, you know, would be obviously he's, he's pretty lean. If we're, if we're being honest, I know he's on a lot of weight during the shutdown, but it's not like he's some hulking dude. He just has a really strong swing. He's <laughs> really hard. Um, but, but I think defensively, you know, you're talking about someone who's, who's easy going to, you know, the athleticism and be able to get to balls and be able to, to, to throw enough for right field. And, and, and that's a position that obviously requires, you know, a substantial bat to go along with it. And I think that's something that, that he showed this year. He's more than capable of, of carrying. Yeah. I'm guessing they're not too concerned with the strikeouts. You know, I, 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 again, you, you learn things as you're going through this process. I know that, you know, every, every hitter that I talk to, and I'm sure you have followed along talking to the members and talking to them yourself, you know, everyone's talked about how they're rated on their swing decisions and, and chasing. So when somebody like Kyle Stowers comes out of college and you're like, oh, this guy hits the ball really hard and he strikes out a lot, and you you think it's a swing decision thing, and, and it turns out it's for, with him it's more just, you know, does it make when he does make contact in the zone? He obviously kills the ball, uh, but there there are some holes in swing that I think they're they're working to address. And I think that I think that when you're talking about in zone swing and miss, that's something that might always be there. But but there were times in the season when it wasn't, and there were no areas where pitchers knew they could attack him. And those weeks where he's hitting three, four home runs. So I think I think that as he he progresses and kind of gets into a swing that that can still do damage in all the parts that it does and protect them for he traditionally hasn't. Um, I think that's going to be that's going to be something that they could easily easily kind of cover for. Again, if somebody's hitting 30 something home runs and striking out 30% of the time, I think in 2022 and beyond baseball that's something that everyone's probably just going to say, "All right, sure, go for it." The next 30-30 hitter for the Orioles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So looking, uh, switching over to pitching, um, DL Hall was giving the uh, best fastball in your rankings over at Baseball America. What about that pitch separates it from some of the other fastballs that are in the system, especially the one that Grayson Rodriguez throws? Yeah, yeah. So, so that was something I've, you know, I've gotten a lot of questions about. I addressed it in, in, in the BA chat. Um, you know, that comes from the different people um, inside, outside the organization. I think that where where it really comes down to is is the overall movement on it. You Grayson Rodriguez's fastball, when it's at his best, is is a perfect like modern day hoppy fastball. Um, I don't know that it always has those like the best characteristics of it all the time. And when he when he gets hit, it's, it's on the fastball when he leaves it in the zone. And I think DL Hall, you know, if he had p- pitched twenty something stint, Bowie was supposed to, or ended up falking, and 
you know, you probably could say the same about his pull over time, but I think the combination of, of, you know, the left-handedness ought to be truthful. Um, you know, in terms of grades, I know that, I know that there's a different scale for, for left-handed pitching at base America than right-handed pitching. And I, so I think when we're talking about velocity, some of the, some of the movement of the life to it, I think it's just a little separator, but you know, if, if they could share it, they, they would share it. Um, you know, there were a couple that I, that I basically had slashes for up until the moment I hit send and you just kind of, you just kind of go with one and you, and you strike through somebody and, and I threw Grayson and I left the hall there on that one. And, it, it, but we're talking about like splitting at this point. You just got to pick somebody. Yeah. And we're talking about two elite pitching prospects here. Uh, that's a pretty good problem to have. Um, go ahead, talk about Grayson Rodriguez. Like, what did we learn about Grayson Rodriguez this year? Now that we saw him this full season, double A competition, argument could have been made. I think a valid argument could have been made that he probably could have ended the year in triple A. But uh, what do we learn about the top overall pitching prospect in baseball after this full season? Um, I, I think we learned. I think we learned a few things. I think that I think that there is, you know, I think that when you watched him in 2019, you saw a really, really good uh, young pitcher with a lot of promise. I, I think he's delivered on a lot of that. And and as somebody who who grew so much in his draft year and and grew so much in in, in that year in Del Marva, he basically didn't have a change up. He learned it in like one bullpen. They put him on IL so he could have a couple bullpens to figure it out, and they. He started throwing it, and he only needed one. And they're like, "Well, shoot, what are you going to do for the next week? You already about to throw a pitch." Uh, like he's really, you know, he's really motivated and determined to to get better. And I think you saw, you know, once he got good, and once he knew he was good, and once the world knew he was good, he kept going. Still, um, their pitching coach Justin Ramsey told me at the end of the season for a story I was in that they spend, they go through their, you know, they'll watch his starts back and they okay, you know pitch into the sixth or seventh today but you know in the big leagues you're going to do that and you threw this pitch one two here they might be looking for it but you set them up with this pitch earlier in the account and so the third at bat go to this one we would two strikes and have this be your strikeout pitch you know so so i guess long story short we learned that this is someone who who is really talented and is getting better and isn't settling you know that's something i think that the orioles are probably most pleased with they don't know what it's going to look like when he's got 130 innings on his arm in in august next year and he's you know grinding through it in the big leagues if he's got if he if he's there nobody knows what that's going to look like but i think that i think that the promise comes from the fact that he is so driven to to make that work and not leaving anything to change doing that i think that's something that was kind of already on the river but but seeing him do it everybody knew he was that guy and he still was like all right but I'm going to be better. I'm going to X, Y, and Z to improve. I think that was something that that was really uh, that was really impressive. How would you compare Jordan Westberg's defense at shortstop compared to Gunnar Henderson? And if they continue to stay roughly on the same timeline as they have so far, who do you think the Orioles will give more opportunities to at shortstop? Mm, that's that's a good question. I think that I think that probably you know Westberg just by being a little more experienced and having, you know, more, more high level reps there. If you, if you're going to count one, two, I guess two plus years of, 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 you know, SEC baseball, I think he would probably be there um, right now on the, on the depth chart that, that I had to do or the projected lineup. I'm sorry. You know, I had Henderson staying at short and Westberg moving to second, just because you have to put Kobe Mayo at third and, and you probably shift everything left if, 
until Mayo gets there. Um, I think that to answer your question, I think that Westberg probably is, is going to be a more, you know, sound and solid defender. I think Gunnar Henderson is going to be able to make all the plays if, if he's, you know, if there's a year where in spring training, Jordan Westberg, you know, this is a stupid scenario to even bring up, but if Jordan Westberg has like a season end injury in spring training and you have to put Gunnar Henderson at shortstop in 2025, the Orioles are going to be, they're not going to need to go out and get a shortstop. I think they'll both be able to handle it. I think that, I think that to get them both on the infield and in a, in a, in a, sorry, I'm moving my hand. It's like weirdly just showing up in the screen um, in a most productive and, and opt- optimal. The word I'm looking for is optimal. In an optimal way, I, in a sense, I think that the best defensive setup they could have would be for Westberg to be at short and Henderson at third. But I'd also don't think that, I don't think that that is a knock on either shortstop ability. You just have one who's, who's been doing it longer and, and another one who, who, you know, is bigger. You can let him grow out if, of shortstop and, and play third and not really worry about it. So that's kind of a, a, a fumbling answer to it, to an easy question. Sorry. We got just to follow up on that. We got a lot of questions throughout the year about Henderson's arm. And usually what we would go back to when we talked about his defense was that the arm strength is really good, but the arm accuracy is not always there. Was what you were hearing and seeing with Henderson matching that or is it a little uh, bit more complicated, you think? Yeah, I, I didn't have anyone get too, too deep into that. But I think at that stage, um, I think at that stage, you know, when, when you're talking about, you know, people's arms and you're talking about uh, you know whether whether the arms are going to play I don't have like how many errors or throwing errors he had in front of me but guys who can't throw don't make throw don't make throwing errors they just don't throw the ball um, and the ball doesn't the ball doesn't get there you know somebody like somebody like Ryan Mountcastle like I don't believe he made a ton of throwing errors I just don't believe that he got to the balls that one would make throwing errors on you know those kind of like charging third base, you know, type things where you're throwing on the run and you're off balance. You don't get to those balls if you, if you, if you can't throw because you don't, you, you know, you're not going to get it. Um, so, so if, if that's what it's in relation to, I would say that, but it wasn't something that it wasn't something that anyone really, really harped on. And, and my, you know, the times I did see him, I didn't see anything that that was a huge red flag in that, in that personally. Going back over the pitchers. Um, Michael Ballman and Kyle Bradis, uh, if either of them was in play for a fifth starter role next year, who would you think would be more likely? And then long-term, do you see them as starters or relievers? Um, I think that you know, Bradis will get added whenever they have to add people for the to bring the Rule 5. So they'll both be on a level playing field there. I'm interested to be, you know, given that Bauman had to come up after they handle triple A starts, whether they say, all right, pull it back a little bit. Like, let's let you build up. Let's let you be, let's let you start. Let's use all your pitches in triple A, and then we'll get you up when the time is right versus somebody like Bradish who had basically a full season in, um, in, in triple A. And I know got better as the season went on. They, you know, towards he got a little bit more aggressive with, with his pitches. He started to just himself as opposed to trying to be perfect. He just tried to be, um, you know, who he is and attack with what he has. And I know the Orioles were happy with that. So I think that all those guys, I think that probably Bradish would be somebody who you'd see in that fifth starter mix. Um, I, I do think that the Orioles would probably be eager to give, you know, 
as many rotation opportunities as they can to the guys who are on that show this year just because at some point you figure out who those guys are. And they, they've shown that if somebody pitches themselves into rotation like Bruce Zimmerman did this year, they'll, they'll, give them, they'll let them do it. They'll, they won't say, okay, you were supposed to be in the rotation you know, on February 1st, so April 1st you're here. If you're not pitching well, uh, you know, you're not going to be there. So I think Bradish is going to have every opportunity. Long term, I think that there's a, I think that Bradish's ability to use all his pitches um, comfortably, not to say he's where the Orioles want or where he would want on that. Um, I think his ability to use all of his pitches and willingness to do so gives him a little better rotation chance. I think there's a lot more skepticism outside the organization than inside that that will be something that, that, that can happen quickly. Whereas Bauman, you know, he was a four pitch pitcher when he, in 2019, when he was at Bowie, he's obviously had a great fastball and his slider was, was, was unfair, but he'd throw a changeup, he'd throw his curveball, And he really didn't throw those pitches very much, you know, as he was getting back to himself this year. So I think that, I think that there's a lot more work to be done to get back to kind of the ceiling that he had in 2019. So I would say in terms of long-term starter, you're probably thinking, you'd probably be looking at Bradish as someone who was, was a little more sure to be that than, than Bauman. Nice. Um, follow up to that though, Bauman, I don't know if you, based on your conversation with people, if you know, but with, with Bauman's end of the year and kind of his slow progression back into the, like going full swing of things last year after the injury, was it just more like a mental thing for him or was he still trying to work for over something physically last year? Or do you have any idea on that? Um, I don't think I don't have, I don't have like a, you know, I can't make a chart right here and say it was X amount, like his arm and X amount. He was worried his arm hurt. Um, you know, everyone kind of follows these things. Know that when someone has a flexor tendon strain and, and comes back to pitch, there's a very, there's a lot more people in the bucket of people who did that and blew out and needed surgery than there are the people in Mike Bauman's bucket who, who rested and, and rehabbed and came back and were able to pitch basically a full season healthy. Um, so if that was in the back of his mind, really unclear um, if that was something that he was worried about unclear. I, th- I think that just having, not having a normal spring training and not, having the consistency um, of pitching that he would have had going, you know, into March and April and kind of coming in slow when the season started. I think that had a lot to do with it too. He does, you know, he's, he's athletic. He's a big, good, he's a big, strong kid, but he doesn't have like the, the cleanest and, and most repeatable delivery if he's not to it. And I think there was a lot of thought within the organization that he was just, he spent a lot of time trying to find that and whether that's, he didn't trust it physically, who knows whether it's, him you know needing to just mentally get back whether it's just reps to get back into his delivery there are a lot of reasons but i think that towards the end in Bowie, you saw that a little bit he wasn't the same you know dominant he was when he was in Bowie in 2019 but he was getting back to it he was getting he was figuring out how to be effective in it and then he went to triple a and he did a pretty good job but then he came to the big leagues and and he learned the lessons that pitchers learn in the big leagues which is when you make your pitches you're be all right and if you leave pitches over the plate you're going to be holding your glove up and get, um, I, I don't think there was a ton of concern that he's not healthy. I think that the Orioles are very hopeful that, that now that he is healthy and he can have a regular off season routine, he's not resting anything. He's not, he's not protecting anything. He can just do what he would normally do in the off season, you know, stay feeling his delivery, stay, you know, get into that 
rhythm. So come February, he is the guy that that's a lot closer to the one he was in 2019 than, than this year. Go back to the young hitters. Uh, Baseball America's podcast, they noted that just one batted ball over 110 miles an hour kind of puts hitters into their own separate category here when it comes to power. And last week we heard with Kobe Mayo in the interview that said he had a couple at 111, 112 miles an hour. Um, how, just how high is the organization on Kobe Mayo? Because I think he's an extremely special prospect personally. And I love watching this kid play. Um, what do the Orioles think about him? Yeah, they, they, they obviously, they obviously are really happy with how, how his went. And truthfully, part of the reason, you know, it, it, I told you I had, like, you know, I like the list, you know, kind of mapped out in my head, like in the teens. And then I talked to somebody, if you, who, who had seen Delmarva, and he asked if Kobe Mayo was in the top five. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, no. But then I thought about it, and I'm like, well, you know, he's not in the top five, but like, are, are we, is, are we selling the fact that, you know, he, he started in the FCL, which he might not if he didn't get hurt? Are we selling that short a little bit? You know, is this somebody who, would have had a better season and just ended up you know, being fortunate to the extent someone can be fortunate to have, you know, an injury and need to be in the FCL and, and, and remake himself. So I think that having seen the that went into drafting him, I know the scouts spent a ton of time on him because you don't see somebody who hits the ball that hard come around very often. You know, as an amateur, he didn't get the ball in the air very much. He, he'll be the first to admit that he's somebody who, you know, he wants to hit the ball and he wants to hit it over somebody's head. Uh, and if it goes over somebody's head, there's a chance it goes over the fence. He's he's the first person to, to admit that, but he wasn't always that guy as an amateur. But the Orioles kept on him. They followed him around showcases. They tried to see him, you know, when his team was playing during shutdown. And, and they stayed on him and they locked on him and they got him. And then they brought him into their hitting program. And, and unfortunately, yeah, you know, last year at, at Instructs, as somebody who hadn't played in a long time, uh, Kind of the same way Gunnar Henderson went to the alternate site and was just kind of matched because he was a young guy with older players and and he you know he he wore it and he and he worked and he got better and he came out of it so they're excited coming out of instructor camp last year gets hurt but but as he's coming back from that and not able to play in games the Orioles are really happy with how he you know learned to learn to work out you know not learn learn to work out routine that's the wrong way to say it. He he got into a habit and, and a and a mindset of really like working on his body and working on the balance stuff they they try to do and, and keeping himself in his core and his you know body right so that he can have the kind of swing that they wanted and he started you know, kind of a holistic deal and he started lifting the ball and keeping the, hitting the ball in the air you know for somebody who's big and and you know tall and a little lanky is what they'd say you know, didn't strike out a ton and he just kept hitting the ball hard in the air it, it was a good approach he still you know still take a walk something that i think is a really interesting trajectory and and the reason you know and i ran this by some Orioles people and they didn't think it seemed too crazy when i said you know at the, if we're sitting here this time next year and he had the gunner henderson as where he started in delmarva and a lot of time in Aberdeen and in September, he's up in Bowie. Would anyone really be surprised? And I don't think anyone truth, truthfully would. So that is a top prospect. That is somebody who, you know, if you're going to be 20 years old and, and hitting well in, in high A at some point next year and pushing to get to double A, that's something really impressive. And, and, and I think the Orioles know that they have that on their hands. They're pretty happy with it. 
That's very exciting. <laughs> Were there any notable risers that aren't evidenced by a spot inside the top 10? And, you know, just how close was it between Mayo and, say, the guys that are 11 and 12? Um, it, it was close. I think once I locked into, once I locked into, um, you know, Mayo being that guy, it was like, all right, I'm just going to do it. But, you know, Mike Bauman was in that mix. Connor Norby was in that mix. Um, it's weird for somebody picked where Norby was not to be in the top 10, but you know, it's kind of just the state of the system right now. It's no indictment on him. It's just there's, you know, there, there's way more keeping him out of um, than, than, than meets the eye. I think that in terms of risers, you know, Kyle Stowers was in the 20s last year. Now he's up in the in, in the top 10. Mayo was in the 20s last year. Now he's up in the top 10. Um, Bradish was just outside. I think I think some of the ones who are climbing in the overall rankings from where they were in last year's handbook are, are the obvious ones. People, guys, that people who, who are following you guys know about, you know, Taron Vavra took a pretty decent jump up. Uh, Joey Ortiz, when he was healthy with somebody, the organization couldn't couldn't stop talking. He was going to be the poster child for, for what, and he probably still is the poster child for what, what can come of remote work and, and the dedication that he had and gets hurt. He's not there. Um, that's pretty much it in terms of risers. How's the international class looking? Excuse me. Yeah. There's, there's a lot more of those than, than we had. you know, last year we had, uh, you know, in, in, I believe 2019 mid season, we put Steven Acevedo in there last year. We had, excuse me, Luis Gonzalez in the handbook. He had kind of a tough year, but Michael Andes and Samuel Basado and, and possibly Anderson De Los Santos are all going to be, you know, featured prominently in this. Uh, they obviously, you know, the first two, the first seven-figure uh, international signings the Orioles had. And De Los Santos was one of the big signings from 2019 class, and they kind of hit the ground running and, uh, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, there's there's some interesting pitchers who, who have come stateside that, that I liked. Um, and truthfully, you know, Gene Pinto, somebody you guys talk about, have talked about plenty, um, is, is, is being there. You know, Michelle Desan is, is in the, in the kind of all mentioned category. I think they did a really good job with some of the international trades as well. Uh, and as they're waiting for their own players to get here, I think those are going to be some interesting players to watch as the full teams next year. So you noted in your chat over at Baseball America recently that Connor Norby, John Rhodes, and Reed Trimble were possible top 30 guys on your full list, but at the time you were still gathering information about the draft class. What have you gathered so far about Rhodes? He seems to be the one draft pick who is hardest to identify as where he fits and what his future outlook is. Yeah, so, so I think, and, and you know, as I was thinking, I think that generally the Orioles – you know they they were pretty clear about it at, at the time, and, and it'd be clear talking to you know, folks on the scouting side and folks who are coaching them that there are there are a lot of physical talent there. You know, there's a lot of Colton Cowser types guys who put the bat on the ball, have a good approach at the plate, do everything defensively. Um, you know, Rhodes, I I, I did the extent that he moved around in college. He didn't really have a position. He played all the corner, infield, outfield positions. Apparently, they had taken balls at shortstop. During fall ball, you know, and it's not to say that it, it's not to say that he can't do that. It's just that they needed him to do everything. He he didn't really have a position that was his own. So so he's kind of behind the eight ball there in terms of where they want him to be. He played mostly right field, I believe, 
once he got to Delmarva. So you have to think that that's kind of where Orioles are gonna are gonna keep him. And in terms of at the plate, you know, they they believe that there's, and this goes for all these picks. They believe that there is going to be power in there um, as they fill out and start start to better understand their swing and understand what kind of pitches they could drive. The challenge for Ryan Fuller and the hitting staff is going to be Anthony Villa and the rest of the hitting staff is going to be, are you going to sacrifice things that make you good to have a chance to be great? Are you to become someone who has a little more swing and miss or somebody who isn't as under control at the plate so that you can drive the ball, hit doubles, hit home runs? Um, that's something that I think is going to be paramount for this whole draft class. I think John Rhodes is somebody who's definitely in that category because He's going to be playing in our outfield spot. Um, you know, a with with the Orioles or B anywhere, you're going to have to hit for some power. Um, you need to you need to be able to drop ball. And you need to to able to lift the ball. Uh, and there there's going to be a lot of work done in the in the coming months, year or so to get these guys to the point where they are they are best. You know, getting off their swing and not sacrificing any of the plan that. That made and the contact ability that made them, you know, attractive to the Orioles at this point. Uh, looking at a guy they drafted a couple years ago now, uh, he's back on the field, Heston Kerstad. It's been really amazing to see all the reports of Kerstad back to baseball activities. I know the Orioles were pushing out a bunch of content the other day, interviews. Love seeing that. Is he full go, full go for next year? And like, do you think his timeline is delayed, or do you think the Orioles, or do you think the Orioles believe that? they can play catch up over the next year or two and get him back to where he probably could have been if he didn't miss all of this time. Um, I, I would say that I would say that the way they handled this year and maybe it'll be different when he is fully, when he is, you know, as you say, full go, I think that he's pretty close to doing everything that he needs to do. That was the question I got from, from his zoom call. You know, they were so cautious and had so little expectation this year as to what it could be or what, what he might need to do for his development. They weren't really concerned about that. They just wanted to make sure he could get to this point where he was healthy and, and, and able to do this stuff in general. Um, I think that if he has, if he had, you know, if he starts in Marva next year and he has one of those three level years where he ends up in Bowie, I don't think that would be rushing him. I think that would be a good sign if he has a year where he goes, you know, he starts in Delmarva and ends up in Aberdeen and never really makes that next push. I don't think that's a bad thing either. I think that they just want to see him healthy and back to himself. Unfortunately um, for them and possibly unfortunately for him, you know, it's not like, it's not like they're a gaping hole in right field that he needs to fill and that they had him penned in as doing this in 2022. Um, I'm sure in a perfect world, they would have loved for him to have, you know, a Jordan Westberg type year and kind of make that three level jump the way that he did and be somebody who's in the major league mix for, for 2022 but you know Kyle Stowers kind of did that for him and they already have a million outfielders in the big league so it's not really a concern right now I think they just want him to get I think they just want him to get back on the field and, and show some signs that that he can be that guy because it's a long road you know he wasn't really doing anything baseball wise and and I know on the weight that he got in college you know pretty quickly his signing scout said that he from the time that you know they looked at him as a high school kid in the draft to the time he showed up at Arkansas you know, for fall ball to talk to some of their draft eligible players that year, you know, all of a sudden Heston Kirsten was jacked and he's like, Oh wow, I should have drafted him. Um, so we know he could put on muscle quickly. It's just a matter of, of how quickly he can get it back and start feeling the way he used to. 
Speaking of the abundance of outfielders, Zach Watson was one of them who took a big leap in 2021, but he may have been the most surprising because of he hit 21 home runs in 2021. It was the 21 type of thing. You have him listed as the best defensive outfielder in the system right now. Just how much has his stock risen over the last year? I think it's risen a lot. Um, he's somebody that it, it's it's very you know when you talk about when you talk about people who the Orioles you know have drafted and what they're looking for. Uh, you know, they like people who can control strike zone and, and don't strike out a lot. And he, he's kind of the opposite of that in, in, in some ways, but, but you can't deny the power. You can't deny, you know, what he did offensively. You can't deny the speed and you can't deny that he plays a real center field. Um, so it doesn't really matter that he doesn't fit any kind of special, you know, archetype, but, but he's absolutely somebody who's put himself on the radar and, and into, has a chance to, to make that push. I, I mean, I'm fascinated to see what the triple A outfield is going to look like next year, because there's a lot of guys who need to be in it. And, and there's a lot of playing time that needs to go around. Um, so I, I'm really fascinated what that looks like, but he, that deserves to be in that mix just by virtue of what he did here. I wanted to ask, jump in real quick, Zach, before we ask that next one, um, one more prospect focus question there from your list on your chat you noted uh your surprise prospect is still or the under the radar prospect was brendan hanafy uh listeners of this show uh followers of mine know that brendan hanafy is my guy i've watched this guy kid since i was like 12 years old dominate the basketball court football field the golf course everything um i really just want to like hear your thoughts on brendan hanafy and just wax poetically about this uh picture that the orioles have <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so so he, you know, I, I was actually looking at um, I, I was actually looking at that uh, at last rankings and and like the thirty one through forty. I know I wrote up Hanfi. He was like the last guy, and he got bumped off for trades or something or other. But but on the thirty through forty thing, I just had in big letters like sleeper. And I was like, yeah, well, I, just, I, I I don't want to say he was for then because I think he had an okay year at. I think he had an okay year at, at, at Frederick in 2019, but he kind of got away from himself. He was trying to be a lot of different things other than Brennan Hanafy and the Orioles. You know, I heard about it last year as we're putting this together about all the work that he did and all the strides that they thought he made and in kind of having his sinker be consistently the good sinker and bringing his breaking ball and, and having – the weapons outside of the sinker to be a really effective starter. And obviously you know, anyone who saw him in Delmarva or, or, or followed him earlier, you know, scouts outside the organization get that. And they just, they love it. They see like a guy who's you know, pitches like he's 35 when he's, you know, has, you know, he's a big leaguer from the neck up as they would say. And they were just waiting for the stuff to come along with it. So the Orioles had see, saw the improvements and they saw what he was able to do in instructs. And they saw he was at instructs. And they saw, you know, what he was, the type of stuff he was doing at spring training. And they were really exciting. I think they, they saw some who was going to be a real asset this year and, and have that double A time and be pushing up, you know, in times this year and unfortunately got hurt. But I think once he's back on the, on the field, you know, the middle of next year, their hope is that he's going to move. Um, he's going to move pretty quickly and, and be in the high minors by the end of the season and and be back in that mix of the next tier guys right now it's just hard to say you know coming off of surgery and, and the you know still having the taste of what happened in Frederick and but I think that's something that 
once he's back and healthy, I think the Orioles are really excited for what it'll look like. Love it. We have a few major league questions to get to in a moment, but I did want to uh, ask about Colton Cowser. It didn't feel like a discussion really on the top 10 or on outfield depth would be complete without him. He really dominated uh, between the Florida Complex League and Delmarva this year, but given how advanced uh, he seemed coming into the draft, that wasn't terribly surprising. So what are what have you heard about Cowser since he entered the Orioles system, and what do you think that they're really going to, going to be working on him uh, with over the next season or so. Yeah, I mean, anyone who watches him at that level I saw somebody who could clear it, who, who clearly has the ability to get the bat on the baseball. Like like we mentioned with um, John Rhodes with him, you know, I don't think we're talking about a slouch. Kowser hit like 16 home runs this year in college, so it's not somebody who can't, can't hit the ball, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have the traditional loft to his swing that, that someone who hits runs would. I think that I think that that's going to be something the Orioles are trying to trying to work with him on a little bit. It is getting a little more swing and having him, you know, get under the baseball a little bit more. I don't think it's something that's going to be a challenge. Um, he's somebody who you know has kind of barrel control and, and ability to get on the ball the way that he will do that. He'll be able to do it. But we're also not talking about you know sometimes you talk about people who need to do that and they don't hit the ball hard. He hits the ball hard. He just hits it online everywhere, and I think that's something that. I think that they're, you know, they went into this with their eyes open, thinking that it was going to work out. Uh, you know, if they got him, that he'd be able to do this type of stuff. And I think there's very little evidence so far that they're wrong in that. Thought. I think it's pretty clear that you know he he's exactly the kind of hitter that they thought he was. I know they love, you know, the kind of kid he is. I, th- I think big part of this 21 draft clacking that, you know, considering themselves. You know, a little team with 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 their Kobe Mayo from the last draft class mixed into it. Um, I know that. I, I think he's been everything they want, and you know, given what he did, I'm not sure that he's going to be very long for whatever level he starts at in 2022. I think it's going to be if as long as he can continue to to be himself. I think this is somebody who can move pretty quickly. So looking now at, you know, the major league side of things, we're really kicking off the offseason now. When you look at the free agent rankings and the contract predictions that are coming out, there appear to be some relative bargains that could fit the Orioles' short-term needs if they're willing to get into that 6 to $10 million, uh, per year range over a year or two. Do you think that's a possibility, or do you think they're not really ready to commit that type of money yet? Um, you know, I... I, I would be surprised to make any of those kind of moves. I think if somebody's going to be here for the long term, um, if 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 you know the right player is willing to take the contract the Orioles are willing to offer them, then then they'll do it. But I think that I think that for the kind of players that can make the kind of impact the Orioles need, someone will be willing to pay more. Uh, truthfully. Uh, but but we're at the point now where you know it's November. They don't have to play a game for five months. That matter five months, yeah, five months until there's a game that matters. So, but they need to get a you know of some form or fashion. Um, you're 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 asking a lot of the, you know the catchers in the organization that even if Adley Rushman is here, um, but you have a good opportunity to sell. Um, you're asking a lot of the pitchers in the organization to do what they. You know, would need to if, if all the basically all the minor league depth they sign 
uh, side of the leaf, but you can also go to a whole new crop of minor league free agents and you know Matt Harvey types, even if they you would hope that they're you know, a little effective than Matt Harvey. They, hey, you're going to start 30 games if you want to. And you could tell a minor league guy, you can say, hey, you can, you're going to be a big wigger if you sign. Um, I don't know that that is going to excite the fan base. I don't know if there any of those guys are going to show up in a top any kind of list of, of free agents, but 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 I still think that until the Orioles are ready to be spending money on a contender, I don't think they're going to be spending the kind of money that it takes to get any of those kind of guys in. Mm-hmm. I guess we can go to the listener questions. Uh, this first one, I mean, you kind of touched on this though, and this one's from uh, pull up the list here. This is from Alex in the Patreon group, and he wants to know, are there any large moves a la Jason Worth to the Nationals that the Orioles could make, knowing that he doubts it, but he can dream. <laughs> so yeah. do you, what kind of you, – you, again, you just kind of touched on this, but you know, what kind of player do you think fans can expect the Orioles to sign is like the type of pitcher or type of hitter the Orioles to sign? In terms of in terms of like who the Jason Worth type would be or who they'll actually yeah. sign. Oh, yeah. the Jason Worth type. I mean, I think that the answer is clearly Carlos Correa. I mean, you just go with him and he's an absolute gamer. He's exactly the kind of guy they want. He's exactly the type of talent um, that they would need. He's not gonna he's not gonna shy away from the fact that they're rebuilding. He's gonna be like a you know he'll have the experience of saying, hey, you know, I know this world because. You know, I have a ring. I don't know if you're those guys that doesn't look at their World Series ring. I think Bregman said he doesn't, but but Carlos Correa, he would he would say, "I've been through this. I know it could work." And he would also not allow to be an excuse that they're going through a rebuild, that they're not you know in a position to compete. He'd want to grab the team by the of its neck and say, "Hey, let's." Um, and then it doesn't. You know, I, I know there was a lot of online discourse. I didn't see a ton of it. I just know what was happening about like whether the Orioles should even bother to someone when they have first-time prospects. Obviously, if they have a chance to get a talented player like that, you do it and figure it out later. There are plenty of places for who play shortstop at age 20-something to, to play later in their career. But the Jason Worth type would be him. I'm really, really scratchy right now. I'm going to really have some water. <laughs> While you do that, let's bring up another question from Vivek here. He said, what is the feel right now in terms of the next steps with uh, Trey Mancini? Or is it too hard to tell right now? Um, it, it, it's a little hard to tell. I think that, I think that his arbitration number is, is, is a level the Orioles haven't gone to. Um, haven't gone to in a long time. I also think that, I think that if you're not paying Trey Mancini that amount of money, regardless of how the CBA goes, you're probably really dangerously close to, you know, having the players union taking notice of how little money you're spending because outside of that, you're probably spending like, you know, if they're not paying him whatever it is, even if Chris Davis's number bill on the books technically, you know, you're talking about a like a like in reality major league payroll that starts with a two, um, and that's not two hundred. So, so I think that they're probably very cognizant of that. I think that they don't have a tr- incentive to do anything um, in terms of getting rid of him because it's not like he's blocking anyone. Uh, it's not like he's keeping anyone who needs to get at bats from at bats. Um, as I noted in our positional, you know, thing, I think that honestly the the inflection point will be when comes up because they'll have to keep somebody on the bench on the days that 
Adley Rutschman is not catching because he's going to be in the lineup. So then you have to, you know, pick between Trey Mancini and Mount Kessler. I think that's, you know, an uncomfortable thing to have to do. But I think that, you know, until you get to that point in June or whenever it is, you know, having Trey Mancini in there every day to, to rebuild a little of his value is probably not the thing. But it's early in the offseason, you know. I If the Orioles were going to be dialoguing about about any kind of settlement or outside contract, you know, extension outside of arbitration, um, those things usually happen a little closer to the actual deadline just because that's when people have the urgency to do it. So I think if there's any kind of movement on that, it would be around them. But, but in the meantime, uh, you know, Trey and Sarah are traipsing across Europe if they're still over there, and um, I hope they're having a good time happy for those crazy kids. <laughs> Definitely. That was really awesome to see. Uh, another question from Vivek is, if you had to think of a, a trade that might surprise us this offseason, uh, anybody on this roster that you think Orioles fans would be a little shocked if they were moved? If they were moved. Um, you know, I think that, I think that you know, if we had this conversation this time last year, we'd Anthony Santander would be somebody who everyone would oh, they trade him. He was the most valuable. Real. He's got all this club control. But I think that given where they are in the outfield, uh, given the salary, you know, still has three year club control after this. Um, and, you know, at, at pretty reasonable rates, I think he'd be very, I think he'd be very attractive if he did not have the injury part season that he did. Uh, I think he's somebody that you'd think, I don't know that I, I the impression I've got from other teams is that when the Orioles are, 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 you know, dangling these guys, they're doing so with, with very, very high price tags. And, you know, I don't know that anyone would beat a price tag for somebody like John Means um, at this point. So, so I'm, I'd be surprised, but also I wouldn't be surprised if the Orioles, you know, traded. Tra- I, I, I'd be surprised if somebody met the price tag, but, but, but I would, would not be surprised if, if they, you know, if they were realistic about what John means is and what he could mean to another team versus what they could get back. Um, if we're talking about trades the other way, I, I'm, I'm surprised at this point that the Orioles haven't like bought a prospect or two. Um, you know, you've seen teams do this in the past where you say, okay, you want this guy. Um, you know, if there's a pitcher who's, making 12 million bucks and the other te- and the team wants to go do something else with their rotation or wants to spend that money anywhere elsewhere, you know, who knows if there is some kind of hard cap with teams have to be under it, you know, the Orioles could be a team and say, Hey, look, take your force who has a four something ERA and you don't want, and we'll pay him, you know, three quarters of what it is and give us a B minus level prospect and a kid you just signed from. Dominican public last summer and the deal. I think the Orioles, you know, I know it's not the question, but when you were talking about trades, it, it came up in my head. I think that's something the Orioles, you know, it, it, it's probably a hard sell up the ladder to say, hey, we're we're going to take this team's contract and, and pay this guy, you know, eight million bucks to do so. But if you do that, you can continue to add to your team base and prospect base, and I think that was something they probably they should be interested in. Not to say they they are or not. I think they should be. Yeah, it's a good point. I think the closest thing we've seen with that is Alex Cobb and, you know, holding on to some of that money to get Jemiah Jones. But uh, the next question comes from David Adams. He says, ask John, what does he understand the main issues of the CBA to be for each side? What are the issues that each side would be willing to hold out over? I'm in basic and like non-technical way, like both sides just want to win. 
they, they want to they want to get one over on uh, on the other side. They want to they they want to keep what they have and not give up a lot of stuff that they don't have. Uh, so so the players are going to fight fiercely for not having a salary cap, for not having kind of spending limits on the up, to upside or side for how you know how teams distribute money that they make off the backs of the players. Um, I think the owners want those kind of salary controls. Um, I think that the owners want to keep probably, if, if they're being honest, the arbitration system that pay $600,000 to somebody who wins the MVP award because he's just a young talent and you don't have to pay when he's not that talented when he's on the downside of his career. Excuse me. So I think those are, I think those are really, you know, going to be some of the sticking points. You know, how players are paid, how early they're paid, and how much they're paid are going to be the things that the players want, want changed quickly because there's a lot of people in the Players Association and more every year who are making minimum. By the time they can make some real money, teams don't want them anymore. So they want to change that. They want to make sure that money is evenly distributed. And I think the, the owners are just going to want to keep salaries down however they can. They have a pretty good system to do that right now. So it's going to be – I think it's going to be a little ugly. Like I said, both want to win. So here's a question uh, from Carl. Of the new uh, flock of players for the international markets, Michael Hernandez, Rangel, Acevedo, et cetera, who can we expect to see on Delmarva's opening day roster, if any? Um, I, w- I would say that anyone who is in the NFL this year – it would be pretty natural for the game performed well enough to uh, to warrant a promotion. That Ranhell would be one. Um, you probably have Pinto as counting as some of the guys that, that got called up in August. Um, would would or, or August or late in the season would would be part of that. So you know somebody like, gosh, uh, Moises Ramirez um, would probably be somebody. I know he hit pretty well in the FCL if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. Um, because there's also going to be people coming over from from Latin America of that big 19 group they and, and all the players from 2020 that need to be part of that also. They, I, I would I would say those I would say anyone you know who is on the FCLs and and had any modicum of success will be will, will be starting in Delmarva because truthfully I'm not sure how many of the the position players who who ended the season will be back. You know, you assume a Kobe Mayo will be, but not. You know, Kowser probably not. Um, is a Connor Norby there? Who knows? Is like a Dante Williams somebody who's that experience? They need him there. Who knows? So, so I think there's going to be a lot of spaces to fill, and 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 I'm interested to see just how many of those guys from, who ended in Delmarva would come back. Um, that would kind of influence how many spots there are for, for those players who spent a lot of time in the FCL as well. Well, John, we always appreciate having you on the show. Um, so can you tell a little, our listeners just uh, about what uh, you have coming up over at the Baltimore Sun and then uh, when we can expect the prospect handbook uh, to be out? Um, so it's pretty, pretty downtime. Um, you know, we're trying to, we're, we did, we, we a nice roster review recently. Um, you know, now it's just going to be kind of following the news. Probably look at some of the, you know, possible additions the Orioles can make, given that they have, you know, no cap and, and very few pitchers and a lot of outfielders. But that's pretty much it on their uh, on their forty man roster. Things kind of settled. There's a lot going on with the 
rule five protections. I know that's that's always a uh, it's always a uh, not exciting, but it's always hot button time um, <laughs> because you know obviously people are going to get you know protected who, who they like and people who are, who they like are all get left to chance. You know, there's an injured who who maybe had down years who they're willing to take a chance on. I think that's just where they are. So we'll be some role type stuff, um, some roster type stuff. And then the, the rest of the handbook, I believe it ships in like January. Sounds right. Um, yeah, it sounds right. Yeah. 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 The Orioles, you know, full top 30 is due today. Um, send on that very shortly. And, but I know there's other ones that are due like rolling into like December. So I think January sounds right. I know. They got picks in there, I know for sure. So, so uh, if there is Rule Five draft, that'll probably be when the, where they're making those moves, and then, and then it'll be soon. Well, John, thank you again for coming on tonight. Yeah, no, very sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, I can't talk right now. <laughs> no worries. Oh, my internet was for that. The, the internet was good. The internet was all right. Good. Yeah, <laughs> one out good. of. Um. We'll be back with the new show next week. On the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge. Uh, one transaction item to note from the Orioles, they did claim right-handed pitcher Brian Barker off waivers from the Toronto Blue Jays. That now leaves the 40-man roster at 32 players. Uh, we'll know here in the coming weeks who the Orioles are going to protect from the Rule 5 draft, if we do have a Rule 5 draft here in the next uh, month or so. Be sure to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest articles. Uh, thank you to John Mioli for coming on tonight's show. Thank you to Bob and Nick. And we'll be back with a new show next week. Um, and until then, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Birds.